Hi, this is Chris Kipp, lead pastor of Renaissance Church in Richmond, Texas. Thank you for streaming or downloading this podcast today. I hope this resource blesses you. If you haven't joined us at a worship gathering or at a house church yet, we want you to come. You can find all that information and more at rin-church.org. I pray that you are encouraged today by the proclamation of God's word. If you had to guess what the most popular game on the planet is, what would you guess? Monopoly is the best-selling board game of all time, right? However, what about maybe a phone game like Pokemon Go has over a billion downloads. There's, what, seven point something billion people on the planet, so like one out of every seven has downloaded Pokemon Go. Like, that's crazy. That's a lot of downloads. Or um, there's... uh, Maybe like in, uh, if you're a gamer, if you have Xbox or PS4 or 5, if you've gotten a PS5, right? Fortnite, you, you've probably heard of that game before. Maybe that would be the most popular game on the planet. Well, the, the answer is that none of those are the right answer. And I'm gonna just give you an example and I bet you're gonna guess this game right off the bat. Parents, you may resonate with this example. Two children are fighting. And you say, what happened? What's going on here? And one of them says, he hit me. And the other one says, she kicked me. And the other one says, he looked at me weird. And she says, I wasn't looking at you. I was looking past you. But you always think that I'm doing it towards you. What game is being played right there? Okay, another example. The the very first message that we shared in this series was why are we all so broken? We looked at Genesis 3. We traced it back to the fall of man that all of our brokenness goes back to the broken relationship with God. And we looked at Adam and Eve. And you know the story of the garden and the tree in the middle and the serpent, right, comes and he deceives Eve and she takes the fruit and she eats it. And then she gives some to Adam and then they realize they're naked and they sew the fig leaves together. And then they hear the sound of the Lord God walking through the garden in the cool of the day and they hide. They get behind the tree. They've got their fig leaves on. They get behind the tree. And God calls out to the men, where are you? And he comes out and he says, I was naked, so I was afraid, so I hid. So if you ever heard of the show Naked and Afraid, that started way back in the garden, okay, with Adam. He was naked and afraid. And he says, who told you you were naked? Did you eat from the tree in the middle of the garden? And I said, not to eat from. And he says... The woman you gave me, gave me the fruit, and I ate it. He looks, the Lord looks at Eve and says, what have you done? And Eve says, the serpent that you created deceived me. So the man blames the woman. The woman blames the serpent, and the serpent didn't have a leg to stand on, okay? Thank you for pity laughter. 
Yes. Chris told a joke. The most popular game on the planet is the blame game. You ever played the blame game before? Some of you played it this morning. You're like, why is the coffee maker empty, right? Well, you didn't buy the stuff at the store, right? So we have the blame game. We all play it. We play it probably more often than we realize. And today in our series, this is uh, week six of soul care. We apparently need lots of soul care, okay? We're in week six and we're not even done yet. We're talking about the blame game. And blame means simply to find fault with or to hold responsible, which by the way, is not a bad thing right? To find fault with, to hold responsible, because we as human beings that are made in the imago Dei, the the image of God, there's something innately in us that wants justice. When something is done wrong, when something is is not done correctly, or something is, is done towards us, where it violates us in some way, it's like we want there to be justice, We have a system of justice in our nation that is important and it protects our freedom. So blame is not in in and of itself a bad thing. It's not a bad thing. However, the blame game is a tactic that we use, I use, you use, to avoid responsibility, to avoid responsibility for our sins in our mistakes. We've all done it. It started all the way back with the very first humans, and it continues to every single one of us today. The blame game, where we cast condemnation on one another or on ourselves to avoid responsibility for our sins and mistakes. Now, the blame game is rooted in the false belief that those who fail are unworthy of love, unworthy of love, and they deserve to be punished. Now, again, in a justice system, that works, right? Somebody does something that violates the law. We have a system to uh, make sure that that is true, and then we're going to give them a sentence, a punishment, right? That makes sense. However, when it comes to our way of avoiding responsibility, we like to just point out to everyone else how they've messed up so that we can make sure that they get punished for what they do. The result, it results in a fear of punishment and a desire to punish others, And most of us probably don't do that physically, but we have lots of mechanisms that we use to exact punishment on the people around us, oftentimes the people that are closest to us, closest to us. It's the blame game. Let's talk about how this shows up in our lives because I think that's important for us to understand. And it shows up in lots and lots and lots of ways. Uh, It shows up as pointing the finger and assigning blame for every failure, right? It's, It's casting our judgment on others. It can be a critical attitude about other people, seeking to punish others for their failures. For example, in marriage, 
I don't know if this ever happened. Your spouse, maybe you're in a group, you're in a, a public situation, social gathering, and your spouse does something that sort of makes you look foolish or dumb or like you're not a great spouse. And you're thinking, mm, I'll get you later, right? Or in the middle of the social gathering, you say, well, at least I don't, blah, 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 right? And you spout off something just to make sure everybody knows who's who here, okay? Parents, when you're in public and your child does something to make you look like a bad parent or foolish, ever have that happen in the Target toy aisle? Anyone? No? Cool, just me. It's all good. And everything in you is like, I will punish you right here in front of all these people and just let them know, right? Or at work, when your boss or your manager or your employee or your team member makes you appear incompetent or that you've, you've uh, delivered a poor performance and there's something in you that rises up and is like, ooh, I'll get you. I'll make sure that you get punished in some way for what you've done. It can take the form of verbal abuse, physical abuse, nagging criticism, withholding appreciation. That's one of the mechanisms like, I will never encourage you again. Withholding appreciation and affection, neglect, or the cold shoulder. All of these are designed to make somebody pay for what they've done to us. This can show up as blaming others, right? In order to feel superior. I'm gonna bolster myself by blaming all the people around me, or I'm gonna blame you know, the current president, whoever. It can be uh, throwing others under the bus. That happens a lot, like in the workplace or whatever. It's like, oh, well, that's because so-and-so didn't da-da-da-da-da-da-da. Avoid responsibility, throw someone under the bus, you die, fine, you know? It could show up as gossip, spreading a negative report about someone, right? In order to build up yourself or to bolster yourself or to punish that person in some way. I'm gonna, I'm gonna let everyone know what that person did so that they have this sort of form of social punishment. Can you believe they did that? can show up as guilt tripping, manipulation, or get this, a distorted perception of God. It's when every hardship that you face is a punishment from God. He's punishing me because of my, my younger years, right? Or even worse, you begin to believe that you're more compassionate than God. You think he's this hard punisher, ready to throw the lightning bolt, but you're this compassionate, loving person. And you think you're more loving than the God who is the embodiment of love, distorted perception of God. It can show up, by the way, as self-condemnation, self-punishment, Believing that if, if I can just condemn myself long enough, if I can punish myself long enough, then I won't fail anymore. It could show up as bitterness, 
can show up as passivity. Literally, I'm afraid of being punished. I'm afraid of punishment. I'm afraid of that failure. And so in order to avoid the punishment, I'm just going to not use the gifts and the mind and the calling and all the things that God's given to me. I'm just going to sort of be passive. It can result in spiritual dryness. The blame game shows up in a lot, a lot of ways. It's the most popular game on the planet. And here's the thing. When we seek to avoid responsibility, we're the ones who actually wind up losing. We're the ones that wind up losing. I want to look at 1 John chapter 2. If you have a copy of scriptures, we're going to look at just two verses today but they're powerful verses. They're a verse that we've alluded to earlier uh, in our series. In each week, what I've been attempting to do is to take a, a word of doctrine, like some big kind of word in the scriptures that maybe takes a little bit of unpacking and just unpacking it together and applying that to our situation. And today we're, we're going to do the very same thing. So 1 John chapter 2, we're just going to read verses 1 and 2. He says, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. This is the word of the Lord. So John, not John the Baptist, John, Jesus' friend, apostle, one of the, the inner three, he's writing this, this letter to these churches, these believers, and he's talking to them about walking in the light versus walking in darkness, and he, he talks about walking in darkness as you're unwilling to open up about your sins. He, he says, if you, if you say you have no sins, you're deceiving yourselves. And then later, if, if you say you haven't sinned, you make God out to be a liar. But walk in the light. And he says, in the midst of that walk in the light, if you confess your sins, right, God is faithful and, keyword, just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So he's talking about how do we live in the light? And in the midst of that, he uses a big word, propitiation. Propitiation, let's, let's talk about what that word means. That's the big, scary theological word. And I found this, um, this definition from Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology, which by the way is fantastic. Um, here's what he says, and this is a beautiful definition. Propitiation is what your Bible may, um, your Bible may translate that as atoning sacrifice. It's a sacrifice that bears God's wrath to the end, and in so doing, changes God's wrath toward us into favor. His wrath toward us into favor. Now, let's just unpack that for a second. Why would God be angry? Why would there be wrath? Well, the scriptures say that God created us to, to live as this 
perfect related being to him, that we would honor him in all the things that we do and say and think that our whole life would be in line with his ways, his heart. And every time that we do not honor him with our, our, our minds, our, our bodies, our actions, our attitudes, it's called sin. That's what the Bible calls it. We've talked about that a lot. And every time there's sin, it's a violation of his holiness. And so when you read Old Testament to New Testament about this day of judgment, a judgment day, a, a day of wrath, he's talking about that there's all these wrongs that have violated the perfect holiness of God. And there's, it, as a righteous God, there's, these things have to be dealt with. They have to. It's that sense of justice that we have. We have to make this right. This is wrong. And so justification that we talked about two weeks ago was God's, um, God's legal declaration toward us. Reconciliation was relational towards us. Propitiation is different. This is God's response to God. It's God's response to God. I heard an illustration from Josh McDowell that I thought was beautiful. I'll share it with you. He was reading a newspaper, and this happened in a small kind of town outside of uh, Los Angeles. And um, in this small village town, uh, there was a speed trap, and it was kind of like famous for a speed trap. You probably know of towns like that. There was a town near uh, my college town that you knew. If I go like one, you know, one mile per hour over 55, I'm going to get pulled over like every single time, right? It was a, a town that didn't have any other real income sources, so it would generate income by pulling over every person that would, went over the speed limit. And so in this town, this girl is probably 17, 18 years old, and she's coming into town, she's going too fast, she gets pulled over. But this town was unique in that the court was always in session, 24-7. And so I, I don't know how they did that, but apparently they had like shifts, and the judges would take shifts. And so it's this, you know, as soon as they pick you up for uh, speeding, they take you right to court. So she goes straight to court. She's sitting outside the courtroom. They say, okay, judge is ready for you. She walks into the courtroom. The judge reads the citation. And then he says, guilty or not guilty? She's like, guilty, guilty. And in that town, the sentence was like a couple hundred bucks or, uh, or like a certain amount of time in jail. You'd have to sit it out, like wait for a certain amount of hours. And so um, the judge reads the sentence for her. It was, you know, a couple hundred bucks or a, you know, a certain amount of time in jail. But then the, ju the judge did something that was really surprising. The judge, uh, he, he takes off, he steps up from his, or he sits, he stands up from his, uh, his little, I don't know what you would call the judge's stand. And he takes off the judge robe, right? And he kind of like lays it over the chair. And then he walks down steps down from the stand and he goes and he stands right beside her and then he pulls out his wallet and he pays the fine what's going on there what what just happened why would a judge do that well the newspaper report said 
the judge was her father. Propitiation was God's way of of satisfying God. You see, that judge was a righteous judge. You you may have known of other judges that would just kind of let their kids get away with whatever, but this was a righteous judge, and he wouldn't set aside the requirements of the law in order to uh, keep his daughter out of trouble. He, He was righteous in that the law must stand. This is what must happen. However, what I'm going to do is step down from my throne, and I'm going to stand beside you, and I'm going to pay what you cannot pay on your behalf. Now, you're already connecting the dots, right? God does not deal with us or sit before us only as a righteous judge. But in Jesus Christ, he descends to our position, standing beside us as our savior, offering himself to satisfy the requirements of the father. It was God's way of satisfying God. Now, justification and reconciliation were about us being set free and liberated. But what's interesting about propitiation is that now God is liberated. He's free to deal with you in love, not with wrath. I believe it's 1 Thessalonians 4. It says, God has not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through Christ. That no longer do we have to worry about the payment. Like when you pass from this life to the next, if you're a believer in Jesus, you don't have to be like, uh, I don't know if I'm going to get in. Because you're trusting that God has paid God's price on your behalf. It's the Godward act of the cross. And when Jesus is hanging on the cross, in his final words, he says, do you you know what it was? It is finished. What he's saying is that I've finished the payment. You may wonder, like, is like eternal judgment in hell, is that like, eternal? Does that go on forever? The answer, according to the Bible, is yes. Revelation 14 says the the smoke of their fire never goes out. Why? Because sinful human beings cannot pay the sacrifice to the end. There's no end to it. Only Jesus could pay the sacrifice to the end. There's one name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. It is Jesus Christ alone. Because of this very reason that he was able to bear the sacrifice to the end on my behalf and on your behalf if you're a follower, a believer of Jesus. So, I want to ask you a question. Do you really know that the punishment has been paid? Do you really 
know that the punishment has been paid. Because if you do, then it changes the blame game, which is all about punishing the offender. I'm gonna make them pay. When you really understand the punishment that Jesus bore on your behalf it will absolutely change the blame game. Let's talk about how it changes. Consider this with me. Number one, blaming blocks forgiveness, but the cross has purchased it. And when I say it blocks forgiveness, it blocks both the giving and the receiving of forgiveness. Okay? It blocks it. Blame keeps us focused on the offender, on punishing them, making sure that they pay. But the cross is where the punishment was already paid so that forgiveness can now be given freely, that God can freely approach you with love and mercy. And the receiving of forgiveness, it blocks our ability to receive forgiveness because what happens is we, as people that want justice, we see our own faults and failures and we're like, I have to pay. I have to pay. Meaning, I'm going to condemn myself. I'm going to make sure that I punish myself for what I've done. Now, this is tricky. Because there is such a thing as godly sorrow. Godly sorrow is saying, I am deeply grieved over my sins and mistakes, the things I've done. Like, I'm really saddened by that. That leads to repentance, according to scripture. That's good. There's also self-discipline, where like Paul said, I, I'm going to discipline myself so that after I've preached the gospel, I will not be disqualified, meaning, I know my tendencies, I know where I fall, and so I'm going to put some things in place to keep me out of the ditches. That's self-discipline, not self-punishment. But self-condemnation is different because here's the, the, the insidious part of self-condemnation is it makes your failures really big and it makes the cross really small. It's believing that the punishment that Jesus took for me and according to 1 John 2, for the whole world isn't really big enough to pay for what I've done. So here's what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna, I'm gonna punish myself. I'm the worst, I'm terrible, I'm so stupid, I'm so whatever, and I just, I'm gonna punish myself until I feel like I've, I've really earned my way back into God's graces and, and I can show people that I'm not gonna fail anymore. And that's really dangerous. And it's actually anti-gospel because it makes it more about you than about the finished work of Jesus. Do you hear what I'm saying? Super important for us. As followers of Jesus, we can have godly sorrow. Amen. We should. We can have self-discipline. Amen. We should. We should not wallow in self-condemnation. Absolutely not. It blocks the giving of forgiveness because we, we want to avoid responsibility and we, we don't want to own our part. And so we just, we keep that finger 
focused and pointed at those other people repeatedly, and it, and it keeps us from being able to, to forgive. In Matthew 18, Jesus shares a parable of the unforgiving servant. Peter had asked a question, how many times should I forgive my brother? Seven times? It's like, that's a nice try, Peter. It sounds like a holy thing, seven times, a number of completion. And Jesus is like, no, like 70 times seven, like lots of times, okay? The point was not like, okay, 70 times seven, how many are we at right now? The point was, forget the math. <laughs> forget the math. And he shares a parable of a, he says the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle his accounts. You probably know the story. And there's one servant who's been given, forgiven, or has, who owes like millions of dollars. And he begs him, please, like, I, I can't pay this. And the king says, it's forgiven. And then that servant goes to somebody who owes him like thousands of dollars and is like, pay me what you owe me. And the guy says, I can't. And he begs, please, please forgive me. Like, I, I can't pay it. And the guy's like, you, you're going to jail. You and your whole family are going to jail until you've paid back every sin. And then what Jesus says, the king said, throw this man into the outer darkness. Throw him out of here. And the point was this, if you fail to forgive someone when I have forgiven you of everything, then you have missed what I've done for you and you're not even, you're not even mine. I will throw you into the outer darkness. It literally blocks forgiveness when we are unable to forgive other people because it says, basically, you've, it, it's, it's, we fail to realize the magnitude of the cross. And we say what we've done before God is less than what they've done to us. It blocks forgiveness. And when, when you understand the cross, there's no offense that you can't forgive. Do you hear that? When you understand the cross, there's no offense. There's nothing that could ever be done to you that is so offensive and so wrong that you're unable to forgive them. The second thing, blaming blocks maturity, but the cross calls for confession. Blaming blocks maturity because blaming keeps me from owning what I need to own because I'm so focused on making sure that everybody knows that you did something wrong. So I can't own my part. But the word confess literally means to agree with or to say the same thing. Say the same thing as. And so when First uh, John uh, 1, 9, when he says, confess your sins to God, he's saying, agree with him. Say the same thing as him about your sins, your mistakes. And it's impossible for us to grow beyond what we can confess. It blocks maturity. I want to make sure you understand this. It does not mean that what the other person did was not wrong. It does not mean that what they did was not deeply painful or hurtful to you. It's not what this means. It's just saying, I have to own my part because I will never move forward. I will never grow beyond this if I don't deal with this. It blocks our maturity. I was thinking of uh, 
characters in the Bible. Think about Moses who murdered somebody. And he goes to live on a ranch for like 40 years afterwards. And then God shows up in a burning bush and chooses him to lead his people out of slavery. Think about David, man after God's own heart, right? The one that we always talk about who commits adultery and then sends the, the husband off to be killed in battle. Wow, that was really godly, David. <laughs> and then God restores him. And out of his lineage comes the Messiah. Think about Peter. I don't know Jesus. I don't know what you're talking about. I was not with him. Three times he denies Jesus as Jesus is being punished for his sins. He's being flogged. He's like, I don't know him. And then Jesus shows up on a beach and he cooks some fish and he's like, do you love me? Feed my sheep. Do you love me? Feed my sheep. Do you love me? Feed my sheep. And he builds the church on the confession of Peter. What? You see, there's no failures in God's kingdom. There were only learners. There were only learners. I don't care what you failed at. If you can own your part, the Lord will restore you. He will use you. He has plans for you. And his plans for you didn't stop when you sinned. His plans go forward. We must confess. Blaming blocks maturity, but the cross calls for confession. Uh, confession. Lastly, blaming blocks healing, but the cross turns wrath into favor. Now, this is something that Jason mentioned earlier, but what happens with the blame game is we get so focused on blaming everyone else that we become victims in our minds. We, we take on this mentality of like, you know, I'm always the victim. Now, every one of us is the victim of something, probably, right? I mean, somebody's hurt you along the way and they, you, you had no control over that. You were the victim of that. However, to get stuck there is to be in a victim mentality to, to where I think that I'm always the victim. And that mentality says that my pain is bigger than Jesus's pain on the cross. My pain is bigger than Jesus's pain on the cross for me. In Isaiah 53, um, beautiful prophetic words about Jesus. And he says, the punishment for our peace was on him. You probably know this. And we are healed by his wounds or, or your translation might say, you might know it as by his stripes, we are healed. Have, you, have y'all heard that before? You know that verse? By his stripes, we are healed. And what's so beautiful about that is not only does he take the negative, the punishment on our behalf, but he turns it around and that wrath gets turned into favor. It's like, I'm not just gonna take away your sins, but can I heal you? Is it okay if if I just get into the, the, the pain of your heart and the things that have happened and just apply my healing to you? Because I put, I, I've got stripes on my back that purchased that for you. Did you know that Jesus will forever bear the marks of the crucifixion on him? He'll forever bear those for us. We can be like Thomas. We can put our hands and be like, that was for my healing. See, blaming blocks healing, but the cross turns wrath into favor. The liberating truth is that God is free 
to deal with you in love. If you've been stuck in the blame game, if you've been just so concerned about making sure that everybody around you gets to pay for what they've done to you, however that looks for you and one of the ways that that manifests in your life, I want you to hear this. That God is able to deal with you in love not as your sins deserve. He doesn't deal with us as our sins deserve. And you can be at peace with him and you are free to deal with others in love, not as their sins deserve. What do we do? First, we have to own our part. Confess, agree, say the same thing as what God has said about your part. Own your part. Second, embrace forgiveness. Jesus, satisfied. God's requirements on your behalf, he stood beside you, offering the payment for you. Embrace forgiveness. Thirdly, let some people go. It's my challenge for you this week. Let some people go. There might be some names or some faces that have come into your mind right now as we've been talking about the blame game and punishment. I just wanna ask, are you still trying to punish them right now? Like really? Is there something in you that just wants to make sure they pay for what they've done? I wanna challenge you to let them go, not because they deserve it, but let them go because you didn't deserve it. Does that make sense? Let them go because you didn't deserve it. But Jesus did it anyway. Maybe there's some debts that you need to forgive because your debts have been forgiven. And you didn't deserve to have those debts forgiven. But Jesus did it anyway. Don't let the blame game block your maturity, your forgiveness or your healing any longer. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Renaissance Church Sermon Podcast. To contact us or find out more information, visit rin-church.org.